Forbes, this guy named Gene Marks, wrote an article actually tying together how the Microsoft layouts might be bad news for Salesforce, which I thought was interesting. But it, I think we talked about it a couple of weeks ago of Microsoft and um, Salesforce kind of creating a partnership so that their stuff kind of works on more of their devices. And there wasn't very many details on the article that I read about that. And what I took that to mean is kind of the relation, the kind of the same relationship that Salesforce has with Google. You know how you know some of their stuff is integrated, and you can call Google Docs and integrate all that kind of stuff pretty easily. And I think that's what we're going to see from the partnership with Microsoft is you know a little more tighter integration with Outlook, tighter integration with you know Excel and Word and those kind of things to generate documents. So I, I guess the integration is kind of a good thing, but we kind of touched on this a little bit too, is that Microsoft sells dynamics. And what does that mean that they're partnering with Salesforce? Yeah, I I think I read that same article. Um, If not, it was a similar one, but yeah, I think one of the points was uh, even though at first it seemed like this was a a big win for Salesforce because, you know, a lot of companies use, you know, Microsoft services, whether it's like office 365 or, you know, like the installed, office products. And so mm-hmm. this is big for, but this guy was making the point or if assuming we read the same thing that this actually removes some differentiation between Salesforce and Microsoft CRM are becoming more similar now. Right. And you know, if Microsoft is doing, you know, our office, our SharePoint, our SQL, our ERP, you know, exchange and Yammer and Skype. And I mean, you know, all this other stuff that Microsoft has that are in a lot of companies, why would we not just go with Microsoft CRM where the, it's going to be the most natural integration? Yeah, and I, I th- we did read the same thing because that's exactly the point that, that I got from this article. And I thought it was really insightful of him to kind of make that kind of crossover, at least that, or tying that together. Because Microsoft does have a history of doing this. They did it with, you know, they had a partnership with Apple in designing software for their system. And then all of a sudden they came out with their own OS and all those kind of things. So, and Another thing I didn't realize is didn't... Um, what wasn't Nadella? Didn't he run the group that created Microsoft CRM? Like, didn't he create so. that? He was part yeah. of the kind of business applications. So that's really interesting. Yeah, you know, and and you keep reading about how Microsoft is like doubling down on, uh, you know, mobile and cloud. Is is MS CRM? Is it? You can. It's kind of cloudish now. Like, I, I know you. If you want to, you can run it yourself. But I think it's. I think yeah, it's very cloud oriented. Kind of, they have kind of both offerings. They have the cloud offering, which. If I remember correctly from my little interaction with it, it was kind of their typical take what they used their kind of on-premise software and stick it up somewhere that you can access the URL. I'm hoping it's better than that. But traditionally that's kind of what I've seen sales or I'm sorry, Microsoft do, which is kind of take their existing products and just kind of stick it up somewhere globally where you can access it. Like I I don't remember a long time ago when we tried to kind of create this project share and you had to have like um SharePoint and hook it up with that and had to do this weird syncing thing. And it just was really awkward. It wasn't, it wasn't like a truly web-based application, but I haven't seen dynamics recently enough to know if, if they've changed it to where it is fully online or if it's still just kind of some kind of sharing technology or syncing technology. Another thing I didn't realize is that uh, Microsoft CRM, I guess is like, I guess right behind Salesforce in terms of size and like last year, I think Microsoft CRM grew, I think, 23%. So it's it's a really, I guess I didn't realize what a viable and serious product it was in the marketplace, just in terms of its, it, it, you know, the success it's having. 
Um, I mean, no one's questioning Salesforce success. If you look, if you look at their, you know, growth um, trajectory, I mean, it's probably, it's probably tapered off some because you can, you know, you can't grow at 300% every year, <laughs> but, right. um, but yeah, they're, they're a serious player. I think, I still think they're like right behind Salesforce or maybe they're the second most. Another thing I didn't realize that I was reading last year is just because there are so many CRM players. If you think of all of the, like the smaller um, small business CRMs and, and all these um, smaller software as a service CRMs that just cater to small and medium business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, it, like I think Salesforce has, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a double digit market share, but it's, it's a minority. I mean, no one, you know, they have a plurality. Maybe that's it. There's no one's got like significant market share or a majority. You mean aside from Salesforce? No, they don't even Salesforce is like, you know, they have like, like 23% market share. So I'm, th- pulling that number out of nowhere, but it's, it's some, it's definitely, it's, you know, it's a small percentage. It's like, you know, 20% or something like that. Well, I, did you, did you think that Salesforce had like a majority of the market share? Well, I think they're definitely marked as the leader of CRM. Oh yeah. They're, they're the biggest, they're the biggest one. But even at that, the biggest is still a small percentage of the, of the market share. Yeah. So yeah, I just, I think people, I think Salesforce, because Salesforce is such a, at least in, of course I'm, tend to be more in the Salesforce world. So my perception is probably skewed, but they seem like such a big player and they are, but they, they seem, they seem so dominating that it's surprising that they only have, you know, this minority market share. Yeah. And I think the, the other interesting thing about this article is it kind of, it kind of backed up some of the claims that, you know, dynamics, they haven't really invested a lot in, in terms of dynamics. And if they really attacked it, they probably could take over a market share of that over Salesforce. And I, I think that's plausible. And one of the things that I think makes that plausible is, is their, their cash flow. I mean, they still have, there's, I mean, so this article kind of outlined a few things. So it talked about, you know, Microsoft's revenue of 22 billion. Um, I think, I think these are 2013 numbers uh, compared to Salesforce's $232 million loss. No, I think, I think Microsoft earns like that. I think that's their profits, right? 22 billion. Yeah. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, so so I'll read it from the article. It says Microsoft has twenty times the revenue of Salesforce.com and earned twenty two billion in its last reported fiscal year compared to Salesforce.com's two hundred thirty two million loss. Yeah, yes, earned. So that means that their you know net profit was twenty two billion dollars, right? And Salesforce lost you know yeah. two hundred thirty two million. So pl- if it, so if if Microsoft's and I'm sure we could easily find their revenue, but if their revenue was what twenty times Salesforce. Salesforce was what last year four billion. So Microsoft's you know eighty eighty billion is probably within the ballpark. Right. So yeah, I mean, I mean, and I don't know. The question is, you know, a company that's as big as Microsoft are they ever going to be able to like out innovate Salesforce? But I don't know, well, man. I, th- I think I mean, Microsoft CRM is, is actually kind of a me. sweet spot for for these companies that are doing mobile technologies and and trying to support the enterprise. Because I mean, that you're talking about you know your sales teams, you're talking about all these things that people used to do in separate tools, and now you're putting them all online, and you're kind of unifying that into this kind of CRM. So I, I definitely see Microsoft attacking it. I definitely see them trying to gain their market share in that. And I think it should be interesting for everyone involved, including those of us that work on Salesforce, because I think that'll help drive Salesforce to continue to innovate and maybe do some, some bigger things. You know, another benefit of Microsoft CRM is when you're working on it, you can write in C sharp and not apex, a real language with real tooling. Maybe Salesforce will come out with the, the ability to do so just to compete. Well, again, I, you know, I've talked about before. I've, I've I've been hearing rumors about positive things in that in that general area. Yeah, I know, but I just rumor you know, ha- do we have that? <laughs> I don't. No, I don't have that. 
I'm not a DJ, but yeah. Um, I think it's, I think it's interesting. I don't know about the whole thing that this, the Salesforce and CRM deal make, make Salesforce and Microsoft less differentiated. Did you buy that? I mean, does that concept make sense to you? I I honestly, I still think it's just a net. I think it's more, I think it's more of a win for Salesforce than it is Microsoft, but I don't know. I think short term, it's more of a win for Salesforce. I mean, a lot of us just use Microsoft tools. We have office, we have all those tools available to us and it'd be nice to have them better integrated and, and those kind of things. So I think it's definitely a short term win for Salesforce, but I think, I think like with all things, Salesforce kind of sneaks up behind you and, and can quickly take over. So you mean Microsoft? Yeah. I'm sorry. Microsoft. Okay. Yeah. 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 Like I said, I mean, they have history behind it to, yep. and you know, it's, this is from their playbook. So I could see it happening. Of course, you know, I was just talking about how, um, I, I it seems like every day I'm surprised at some of the things Microsoft's doing just in terms of their innovation and, and being really aggressive, like in mobile and cloud. And, you know, especially, you know, the fact that, you know, they're, they've just embraced Linux and just all sorts of stuff that five, 10 years ago, you would have never believed. Right. Right. But then, you know, I was reading, I think it was last week, they, I guess they announced some numbers or something and, you know, they spent, what was it? Six or $7 billion marketing Windows 8. And I don't use Windows, um, not on a regular basis anyway, but by I think by most accounts, I mean, Windows 8 has just been an absolute turd. It's just, you know, they've had to spend so much money in marketing it and, and they've kind of changed philosophies with some of the major releases and it just hasn't, it just hasn't gotten, um, it hasn't gotten, you know, uptake and it's just, yeah, and I think, as a product in general, it's just been considered a failure. Yeah. I think what's interesting is, is just the, they, I think they attacked it too quickly. They, they went for that full mobile and desktop integration. And I think they just did it too quickly. I think they should have taken a little bit more time and started integrating features over time. Kind of what Apple's been doing with, with OS 10 and iOS, you know, they're, you're slowly kind of starting to see features show up in both places um, where it makes sense. And then eventually we may get back down to, that's, you just said the key thing where it makes sense. And I think that's what Microsoft, they just, they made all yeah, the wrong judgments. And, that, and that's, that's where they kind of went wrong. They just kind of said, Oh, we're going to unify this and we're going to have this one operating system for both. And it just didn't translate well in all fashions. And then I think the other th- major thing that hurt them is that windows writing apps for windows eight and for that windows store has to be compiled for windows eight. It's not, you can't run your windows seven and put it on the app store. And so I think that kind of hurt it too. Because there are apps that I would like to write and I would like to show up on the app store because I'd like that kind of distribution mechanism. But I also know that my audience is going to be a lot of Windows 7 or, you know, actually, yeah, a lot of Windows 7 since XP is gone and no one likes Vista. So, and not, and, and of course, no one likes Windows 8. Um, it, it takes some getting used to. It's not too bad, but I, I just think they, they took the ro- too aggressive of an approach with the whole mobile, unifying with, with mobile and touchscreens. Do you remember when they made like, I can't remember what this thing was called, but it was, um, it was an, I don't know if it was an add on to windows or if it just came with it. It might've been like with millennium edition or 98. Bob, no, Bob I'm talking was. about when they made your entire, you know, like your desktop, like your background, like every, instead of things being like normal icons and things you have to double click on, they all became like, look, they look like web links. You hover over them, you know, they get an underline and you, and the, you single click. So what was that? Was that active desktop? That's what it was, right? You remember that? 
I think you're thinking Bob. No, no. Um, yeah, Bob I, is where they kind of represented a room as a room. And if no, they, if you wanted to check the time, you clicked on a clock and there was your clock. If you wanted to see your contacts, there would be a little desk and you click on a little um, Rolodex or something. Is that what you're thinking? Um, okay. So act educated. This is the segment of the podcast where we consult Wikipedia. Um, so active desktop was a feature of IE4's windows desktop update that allows the user to add HTML content to the desktop along with some other features, but it made your entire desktop of your computer. Um, it made everything instead of, like I said, normal icons that if you wanted to launch them, you double click, you know, cause it took, it took 20 years to teach people to double click. And now that we did, now we change it to a single click. It was, it was terrible. But anyway, that was the whole I think thing. It's also like, a security issue too, because it's just running a bunch of page web pages, right? No, just I mean, you're like if you had um, an application shortcut on your desktop, or your my computer, or anything like that. They were all they became these. They looked like a web link, and they were single click to launch. So it was just it was uh, and again it was, it was I just think trying I to remember something yeah, in those lines, was, and I probably hated it. And you probably turned it off immediately. Most most expert users did, I think. Yeah. Oh, but that just sounds horrible. Yeah, it was it was bad, and and I think that was a similar thing of, you know, that this was like once Microsoft finally uh, decided to quit ignoring the web, and, th- and that's when they went on the we're going to ruin the web. So or those earlier, you know, Internet Explorers four, five, six, even seven, that they just tried to destroy and and propri- proprietorize. Is it? Can I make up that word? The web, right? <clears throat> and that was part of it. Just uh, really misguided. So uh, can, I want to I want to propose a new uh, weekly segment called Face Palm of the Week. <laughs> Only if you put a clip to introduce it. Uh, I don't have anything, but uh, I'll, I'll look for something. But anyway, I think um, I think I saw this from uh, S- Stephen Harrod, uh, or might have been someone else uh, on Twitter. But um, anyway, it's um, it was actually I think that this is a, this is a six, an idea or what are they? Yeah, the, from the Idea Exchange. And it's from um, uh, Keir Bowden, who's this uh, well-known, I think he's Bob Buzzard. You recognize that name? No. Okay. He's, uh, I think he's an MVP. He's always right. He writes a bunch of helpful stuff. I think he's got a blog or something. But anyway, it's, the idea is to stop stripping HTML comments from Visual Force pages. If you add an HTML comment to a Visual Force page or, you know, an XML, technically it's an XML comment since Visual Force is XML. Um, this will be removed when the page is rendered. In cases where the comments are actually controlling how the pages behave, such as CSS conditionals comments or knockout.js container list, you know, for each directives, um, the comment has to be built up from a number of elements, including the dreaded apex output text with escape attributes set to false. <laughs> um, so yeah, so visual, so visual force strips HTML comments because it thinks it knows better than you that you don't, you shouldn't be putting HTML comments in your visual force pages. I actually have never tried to find those. I, I comment my mm. HTML markup every so often, but I never use it as, I, I guess because inspection tools have gotten so, so good. I rarely have a need for the comments anymore, but used to, I use the comments as kind of a way to kind of show where my code was at or where the sections were. And then of course you'd load up the text of the page and I'd search for those comments and look at that. But since, since the debug tools have gotten so good, I could just you know hover over an element, inspect it, and I'm right where I need to be. Well, and also nowadays, if you if you do things like name your your CSS class as well, you shouldn't need if you if you if your HTML needs a lot of 
comments so you can find your way through it, you're doing something wrong, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel, I feel the, the same, same way about, about debug logs. Oh, we're going to say the same thing. James, you'll be a Coke. <laughs> well, no, I'm talking about code, not necessarily debug logs, but code itself. I mean, if the, you shouldn't have a lot of comments in code. If so, then uh, you're doing it wrong. Uh, yeah, I agree. I, I mean, your classes hard should be maintain. named well. Your methods yeah, should be should not be only named well, but they should be short. It should be self-documented. It should read like English. However, I do have a little, I'm going to call it a tip. And that is when I start writing code, I don't always know everything I'm going to need up front. I don't always know that I'm going to need this method to kind of do this and this method to kind of do this particular section of the code or either for readability or just for um, testability. But what I do is as I'm writing this long method, I comment, you know, certain blocks of code that I think do a certain function, like, you know, go get this data and now evaluate this data for X, Y, Z or collect a bunch of IDs so I can query them later. And I'll usually comment those beforehand. And then what that does is that gives me spots to look back when I go to refactor to say, oh, this could be its own method because this is all self-contained. And so I kind of use my comments as kind of an outline for my code. And that way I can write my big long method and then refactor it down to something that's more manageable and testable. Right or wrong, that's that's kind of what yeah. I do. So I do end up with with a quite a few oh, comments yeah. because I, I know of what that. You're You've explained that to me before. Yeah, um, yeah but you, aren't the comments are almost you're using comments in as a part of a process, right? Um, to almost as breadcrumbs to find uh, they're almost like to dos for you. Okay, I've yeah, got these comments exactly. here, and this probably you know, and you go through you know if you look through a you know a decent sized method body, and right in the middle of it, you see some comments, you know, get, you know. Get list of accounts. Maybe, well, maybe that you know that's that's a prime candidate for a, another method, right? Right, exactly. And by the way, people who say that it's stupid to have methods that only have one call site are themselves stupid. It is perfectly okay to have methods that only have one call site. Absolutely. I mean that that is not the justification for creating methods. Yeah, um, it's not. It's not always about the code that you write today. Sometimes it's about, you know, future proofing your code. Sometimes it's about, you know, scaling your code or being able to modify things or adjust things or fix something that's either misinterpreted or wrong later on. I mean, I've had plenty of cases where I've had, you know, a single call method and needed to adjust something. And I knew exactly where to go. It was, it affected that one method. I could test that out and be done with it. Yep. And you know, but in I terms of comments, what I really hate to see are those that sound like they were written as a tutorial. So you'll see comments like this makes this variable, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, it just, it's almost like it, it's trying to teach this you. This initializes a variable and with, with a new value, it's like, right. and well, what's worse is when you're working for like some consulting company or like a project manager or, or a client who wants you to do that. Right. And it's like, this is going to, this is going to result in terrible code that makes it harder for me to read. And the problem is, is the compiler can't tell me when my code has gotten out of sync with my comments. Exactly. Now um, I do, do like to use comments for things that are kind of weird or complex or something, or I'm doing something that I, that normally you wouldn't do, but I need to kind of explain why I'm doing it. So I'll write okay, a little so comment on a line or something. That's an, and so you just set up the keyword, which is why. Sometimes you need, you need to explain why you're doing, especially if you're doing something that's like not the normal way to do it because the norm, like the, the normal way to do it is doesn't for, for some reason, whatever, you know, you know, this scenario doesn't work correctly or as well. Right. And so what happens if you don't have that comment in there, someone might come in later and say, Oh, why is he doing this? So you can just do this normal way of doing it. And, and they spend time making that change. And then they find out the hard way, the same way you did that that doesn't work. 
Whereas if you just would have left a comment explaining why you're doing this thing, right? Um, that, that's actually that's so well that's that's one of my you know rules where I will allow myself to comment. But uh, there's this thing I don't know who this guy was. Um, uh, like you know, it's like Odding, Ottinger's rules for he's got other there's other rules too. Um, Ottinger's rules for comments. I actually had this as an Evernote. I knew I would have something in my Evernote about comments, but there's he's got there's three rules here. Okay, so the first rule is. Comments are for things that cannot be expressed in code. And why you're doing something cannot be expressed in code. What you're doing can be expressed in code. And how you're doing it can be expressed in code. But why you're doing it are not expressed in code, right? So that's, that's one rule. And, it's, and that, that comment will not be redundant. It's not redundant with the code, which is actually his second rule, the redundancy rule. Comments which restate code must be deleted. <laughs> Like you just said, if the if the comment is saying exactly the same thing the code is saying, then it needs to be deleted. Because it's a it's it's not only does it make does it make the code actually harder to read, but it's a liability. It has to be maintained when the code is changed, refactored, modified, whatever. And of course, it doesn't get maintained, right? It doesn't stay up to date with the code as the code changes. Um, and then there's another rule. This is the single truth rule. If the comment says what the code could say, then the code should be changed to make the comment redundant. Then, of course, because it's redundant, you remove it. So your code, the code should speak to you in a clear way. I have other rules too. Like, and these are, I think these are rules of thumb because there's some cases where I think they're okay to break, but like um, a method, and some people have really draconian versions of these rules, but like one rule that I find that I rarely have to break is I should be able, a method should fit on the screen, on a small, on a small screen, not on one of these huge monitors. On my 15-inch MacBook Pro, even with like a, maybe a window, a status window across the bottom and stuff, like that method should fit on the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, a corollary to that, or kind of almost a restating of it, is I should be able to look at any given method, and it, I should be able to fit it in my head. I should be able to look at it and understand it. If it's too much logic to understand, then it needs to be broken down into bits that can fit into a human brain. How many times have you seen methods that go on for pages and pages and pages and pages and they're indented so far that they, they actually start like lines will start past like <laughs> past a typical cutoff limit, like past a hundred columns. Well, that's one of the reasons I love IDEs. They kind of show that outline on the, on the sidebar. So, okay. Like so blind does that. Cause I, if I see a spike, which is what I call them, if I see a little spike in the indentation, I know something's wrong there and I need to break that up into smaller pieces. So I was pairing with someone recently. And you know, they've their IDE or their editor <clears throat> has, has that, that, um, you know, I don't know how many columns 80 or a hundred columns, right. It has the line, the vertical line. Mm-hmm. And I honestly don't think that they knew why that line was there. <laughs> because the 80 character line. Um, I, you know, I don't, yeah, I think it was actually further than 80, whatever it was set at, but I think whatever it was set at was the default for that editor. Mm-hmm. It looked like it was closer to hundred or 120, but I think this person had no idea what that line meant, what it was there for. Because all of the code was, I mean, there was so much horizontal scrolling going on. It was, you know, just completely uh, neglected. Yeah, I'm also a big, I'm also pretty strict about horizontal scrolling. There's only a few cases where I'll let that happen. But for the most part, most of my code should fit on screen and you shouldn't have to horizontal scroll. Yeah, the only time I ever have to break that rule, I won't say ever, but hardly ever, is, is, um, no, it's actually like HTML because I try to keep HTML so I don't have to scroll as well. But sometimes, 
Yeah. Let's get in a situation where there's just, there's enough nesting and it's not necessarily the way I want it, but just to get the, the, the markup right so that it can be styled the way I need it to and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's either that or I stop indenting and I don't like that either. So I think I'd rather, but you know, I think I'd rather it go past my, um, my column limit than, than, than not have proper indenting. Yeah. I still see that as an opportunity to try and maybe consolidate. Like maybe there's just way too many parent blocks or something that for some reason that shouldn't be there. Um, yeah, and, and it doesn't it doesn't happen often for me, but yeah. I, I don't know. I, I've broken my rule. In, it, in yeah, those situations. I, I've probably broken it a few times there as well. Just trying to create something. It, usually, it happens when you're trying to do something a little more dynamic. When you're trying to do something a little more complicated than just stick a you know field or table on the screen. So it's definitely not the norm. It's when you're getting into some really customized stuff. It's Batman Day. Oh, so did you think that? Did you think the stripping HTML comments was uh, is that worthy of face palm of the week? It is. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's terrible. Oh. Batman will save us. 75th anniversary of Batman is today. Was that today? I thought it was yesterday. Yeah, it's either today or yesterday. Okay. Anyways, I'm calling it today. I got my Batman shirt on. Now, you're a Batman fan, right? I am a Batman fan, but I'm definitely more Marvel than I am Batman because I really like, you know, the Avengers. Batman was probably... I never really was into Superman when I was younger. I was really into probably Batman. I was really into Spider-Man. I think the Hulk was probably one of my favorites too, but yeah, I tend to lean more towards the, the Marvel side and things, but you know, Batman is still kind of central to, to a lot of it. My son really loves Batman. As soon as he saw all my characters and got picked one as his favorite, it was Batman. My daughter, mm. it was Spider-Man until later. She what liked the Hulk more, which is funny, but <laughs> I don't know why she likes the Hulk. I, he made one comment in the Avengers movie where he beats Loki up and then he kind of like walks off saying, you know, puny God or something like that. And she just cracked up at that line. Ever since then, the Hulk was her favorite character. But before that, it was Spider-Man. Mm. But with my son, it's Batman all the way. It's Batman everything. So. And the Batman movies were always so dark for me, like just literally dark, hard, hard to see. And, and I'm so behind on Batman movies. I, have, I don't think I've even seen like the recent, most recent, like four or five of them. Well, we have Batman to thank for our, our kind of plethora of comic book heroes. Because it started with Tim Burton. Tim Burton really showed that you can be respectful to the source material and still create a good movie, have good actors, you know, have us a highly stylized film and it would be successful. And that allowed other things to happen. Because before that, it, it was either really campy stuff because they didn't really understand it, or it was just these thrown together movie. Well, actually, it was really campy just because it was a comic book. And then it was thrown together because they didn't understand the source material. And so they got a lot of things wrong, or they had really crappy actors doing really dumb things. It's just so they got better over time. And I think yeah. Marvel taking over kind of the movie process more so. I mean, they've always kind of licensed it and had a hand in all these movies, but I think it's almost like Daredevil was like, crap, we better take this over and do it right. Or we're going to lose, we're going to lose out here. Yep. And, and I think that it does, it does work because there, there's enough respect to the source material that geeks like me can get into it and go, Oh yeah, I remember that storyline. And they, they change it enough that it makes sense in the movie world, but not so much that, that, all the things that we've kind of built up over the years in terms of story and you know, all those kind of things still make sense. What else is going on? It's leading up to comic con. We're going to get a plethora of, uh, 
pictures of comic book bays and cosplay here soon. <laughs> That'll be my entire Twitter feed is uh, a bunch of cosplay. You comic perverts. <laughs> girl, um, girls in skin tight pleather outfits. Yeah. <clears throat> A lot of them squeezing into outfits that they probably shouldn't be. Yeah, <laughs> now, is this the big one? Like, what is yeah, this? Is, is a big San, San Diego, Diego or? Okay. Yeah, it's the big one. Yeah. I don't, I just don't get into any of that. Not into the comic book thing. I would never go to Comic Con. Not that I don't think I'd enjoy it, but there'd be way too many people and I just can't handle that. I think so you've, been said, to, you've been to Dreamforce. That's got to be worse. More, th- more people in, in a much smaller space. Well, the other thing I hear about Comic Con is the costumes make everyone hot and sweaty. Oh, (laughs) so it can be a really stinky place too. Uh, In fact, I think they have like public service announcements every so often from what I understand about making sure you shower or making sure you're you're not smelly. Um, So did Uh, you see that Salesforce is just too white? What? Just too white. Too many white people. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. They, they, they pulled a Google. I guess a lot of the companies are doing this. I don't know. And they released their, because this is what really matters, right? It, um, it doesn't matter how much money we make or the value we provide. It's, it's how many white, how many white dudes do we have? That's the problem. We got, we got too many, too many men and too many white people. Um, Reverend, uh, the Reverend Jackson uh, says this is pathetic. And I guess Salesforce is working with the rainbow push coalition um, to, uh, to help, to help them. Um, They've done, they've done much to address poverty and inequality, really, in San Francisco, and uh, have given serious focus to the issue of in- inclusion and diversity. I guess Salesforce is exclusive. Um, but as their workforce numbers indicate, just 2% black and 4% Latino, they too mirror the dismal minority population in the tech industry. Oh, yeah, so, uh, so yeah, they are, they're 71% male. 67% white. Um, as with Google, they're, they're, they have a high like Asian and Indian population or percentage, which is 22%, which I think is above like the national average. So, so I guess they got to cut back. They need to cut back on Asians and Indians because they're actually higher than the average population. So they must be um, like anti-bigoted when it comes to Asians and Indians. But yeah, it's just, this is just weird. I mean, am I, am I to believe that Salesforce? I mean, I don't know what we're to believe. I don't know what they're saying here. Is it that Salesforce is is racist and, and bigoted and sexist and their hiring and work policies, you know, discourage women and minorities from working there or. I think that's what they'd want you to think. Uh, well, I, I mean, who you know, wants pe- you to think that people like, like Jackson, just, I don't know. I think, I think, I think the big problems, the big problems have slowly kind of, minimized or gone away in some cases. And so now they're kind of nitpicking all these little things and it's just to kind of maintain some kind of relevancy. Cause I mean, come on Salesforce, they're beyond charitable. They're beyond equality. You go to a freaking Dreamforce conference and you see tons of women, tons of, I'll call them minorities, tons of people of different colors. We're all intermingling. There's no one side or the other side. So I really hate these type of articles and these types of reports that are trying to get these companies or influence them in some way in terms of their management or anything like that. Cause I'd like to think that they're everyone's hiring based on qualifications. So what do you think Salesforce's incentive to, to release this data and, and have an article written, you know, in the, wherever it was SF gate or wherever about them, what was their, why did they do this? I don't know. I think, I think sometimes these companies are just out of touch. 
I, I really do. I just think they're out of touch and some someone comes up with some big quote unquote potential issue and for some reason they get blindsided and start releasing stuff about it, which when it's not an issue. I just I don't know. My humble opinion is that I don't think this stuff is an issue. Unless there's like true representation that they are discriminating against, in which case the people involved would definitely sue and that would definitely make it public knowledge and and we'd have it start addressing it then. But these just kind of random reports that says, oh, we're not hiring enough women or we're not hiring enough minorities. It's just, I don't know. Yeah, maybe so- maybe what they should, maybe, maybe they need to make sure more people are wanting those jobs. Maybe it's that people don't want to be there. I don't know. Yeah. There was a Business Insider article that said uh, so that said that Salesforce's numbers look overwhelmingly similar to stats from other Silicon Valley companies. Um, its staff is seventy one percent male, even fewer women. Uh, oh, in tech and leadership positions. Uh, in the U.S., the company sixty seven percent white. Uh, in fact, Salesforce is less diverse than Google, Yahoo, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, I, I can tell you it doesn't translate for some reason. I don't, I don't hear anyone coming out saying, oh, this, this major construction company does not have enough white people or the, the wrapping industry doesn't have enough white people. Is this not just a, this is a West coast thing, right? I, I think so. I mean, it's just one of those things to stoke the fires that, to, to make some agenda or make it seem like they're doing something. Cause it, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't translate into other things. It's not like there's that big divide. It's, it's just, People living their lives and people qualified for things and and getting making their way. Unless there's true discrimination, where you know someone had a boss that said, "Nope, sorry, I'm only hiring white people to for this position." I just I don't see it. Yeah. In this day and age, I don't see it. And maybe maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'm blind to something big. And and these guys got it covered and great. But from my perspective, I just don't see it, and I never have. Yeah. I mean, so if you had more diversity, more you know, shades of color of, of, of skin in Microsoft in Salesforce's offices. What, how is that better? And, and what is the right mix? Right. You see what I'm saying? It's like, are we, are we shooting to look exactly like the United States diversification breakdown or is, or, or exactly like, you know, like um, maybe just Silicon Valley's what, what Silicon Valley's, uh, you know, demographic breakdowns are, do we, are we, or, or what? Because like in some areas, they're like, they overrepresent. I mean, I'm not even sure they're overrepresented in white. I mean, I don't know what um, San Francisco, I don't know what its numbers look like. But I remember with Google's, they're, they're overrepresented in Asian and India. So should they, should they bring that down? It looks like Salesforce maybe But as if well. you go should, to San Francisco, they, what do you see? You see a lot of Asians, you see a lot of Indians. It, 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 I, I don't know what to say about that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, I, just, I think I come back to the same thing you did. It was like, I'm, I mean, unless Salesforce is, you know, discriminating. I mean, aren't they just hiring the best people from the pool of candidates they can get? I mean, yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't see what, I don't quite get the value in if they could, if they could move some of these numbers around. I mean, they're, they're treating people. They're, they're treating people like they're uh, like they are a skin color or a, or a gender instead of like, instead of the, the talented, skilled and educated person that they are. I, right. I don't know. I think the other thing too, is that, these are problems that only happen to a company when they get this big. When I will call them, you know, instead of first world but problems, but this didn't happen to Salesforce. Salesforce problems. did this to themselves, 
it's got to come from somewhere. And they either did it for themselves because of something someone said or some report they saw or Jackson went and called Benioff and said, hey, yeah, send me a report of how many people you have in these demographics or or he found out and said, hey, you got wait, you don't have enough people in these other demographics. Something triggered it. I don't think they're just sitting around looking for something to do. They got plenty to do. They're not sitting there. I don't think they're sitting around doing this, but these, these are things that big companies worry about because it's so tied in with their public image. Well, and so yeah, their PR is. departments it have is. to worry about this stuff. Well, and so if someone calls up and says, Hey, I don't think you have enough X, Y, Z, then they're going to have to do something about it. Doesn't, doesn't this also seem something that's just right in line with Benioff's, his own kind of, kind of flavor of progressivism. Um, I mean, this, this just seems like this is his personality. This is, this isn't his personality to, to do something like this. And I'm not saying that's bad. It's, it's, I mean, maybe he genuinely, uh, and I don't, I, don't I, I think all it, do, all it shows it, it, cause Ben, I think this would be right up Benny O'Sally. If he saw a company that was discriminating and not, not having enough diversity, he would be one of the first ones up there, you know, chiming in and donating money to try and change it. So I think the fact that it's happening within his own company just says that it's not, it's not an intentional problem here. It's something that just happens because of the demographic of where you're at or what you're hiring or what the qualifications of people are that are coming into your organization. Cause I, I, again, I mean, yeah, he's, he's, he's a very progressive guy. He's, he's definitely on the, on the liberal side and, and you know, there's definitely a big push on that side for diversity on all sides. Actually, I shouldn't say just that side, but all sides. Mm-hmm. So, and he's, I would say that he's very conscious of that. So the fact that it's happening within his own company doesn't say, it doesn't tell me that it's something intentional. It tells me it's just something, it's just a general issue. So, you know how, what, one of the things that I think companies, especially this came out of like the nineties and early two thousands companies would put up these big banners about their motto, you know, quality is job number one or Kaizen and all this stuff like, you know, continual improvement, but people that, that never seemed to filter down to like how people can actually do their jobs better. Do you remember, you remember how we've talked about this before? Um, so with this, this release by Salesforce of this data, what are they, what are they actually telling um, hiring managers, you know, HR and stuff? How did, what is this, what change to the you know, to the HR policy will come out of this? Probably a lot. And I think, I think really? you can almost, I mean, really, I, I would, that's what I, I would doubt that. Like, how do you I, actually encode, we need to hire less white people? I can tell you it influences everybody everywhere that has to deal with this type of problem. I, I know, I, I know people in other industries will call them who know full well that if they're up for a position and there's another person, uh, either of a minority or female up for the position, they will definitely get it before they will because that industry is trying to increase their diversity. It's going to happen when you start paying attention to isn't, this type of stuff and you start illegal, focusing though? on your diversity numbers. Isn't that illegal? Uh, I don't know that either is I illegal. I mean, I don't, it, I don't think qual- you can the, say that you're hiring or not hiring someone because of any of those attributes. I th- no, I don't, I don't think, think it's that. I think it's just a choice. You're making it a conscious choice of who you think will be best fit for the company for this position. And sometimes that might come down to, well, our diversity numbers are kind of low. Let's bring this person in to kind of help our numbers. They're yeah. just as qualified as, the, as, as Joe Blow over here. So but you she can also do that. serves this you other can, purpose. So she gets bonus You can, you can do that, John, but you, you can't, you just can't say that you're doing that. Right? I guess. I don't know. I don't think you can. I guess, I guess Joe Blow could sue and say, hey, I didn't get it because, because she got bonus points for being a woman. And the company come back and say, well, that's subjective. We chose her because we feel she's the best fit for the company in this position. It's just like, you know, Hooters, you know, Hooters went through an issue where they were, I think it was Hooters. It was one of those places that hires, you know, hot chicks to, to serve you. 
and they were getting sued because women <laughs> wanted to wanted to work in those positions, but they weren't quote unquote p- pretty enough. It, it was a subjective thing, you know. And I, I almost want to say they kind of got around it by saying they're actors, they're or mo- actresses, yeah, they're or models, models. Mm-hmm. they're models, yeah. and so by doing that, they've kind of said, well, you're a model, and we need you to look a certain way and fit a certain, um, yeah, fit a certain ideal. And I, I don't see that being any different in these companies that are doing the same thing to try and increase their diversity. Well, it's, it's just one of those things, one of those factors, one of those minimal though. factors that, yeah. that kind of contributes to you getting a position. It, it's, it's, it sh- it's now shouldn't be the only criteria. Now, in my, my example, you know, uh, but, Joe but you're saying and it, Jane. You're saying it were, should be a criteria, though. You're, you well, what I'm saying is that Joe and Jane both are qualified for the job, but Jane helps the diversity numbers. So there's one bonus point. You know, maybe. And that's no more subjective than Joe is really friendly and, and cool guy to hang out with after business meetings. You know, wouldn't that give him a, a bonus point? And hasn't that been happening in our long history of, you know, the boys club? I don't see it being any different than that. No, I don't, I don't know. You lost me on that one, but <laughs> I'm just saying that the fact that they chose, you know, maybe a woman, we'll say a woman in this case. So we'll say Jane over John, because she helps that diversity number. They're both qualified. They're both you know, great candidates for the job. They both do a great job, but Jane has that, that one extra, you know, feather in her cap because she can, you know, she can help fill that criteria. And I know that sounds horrible, but in, inversely what's been happening in the past is, is maybe Joe got the job because he, you know, the guy above him really likes hanging out with him and that gave him a bonus and he got, he got promoted over that. We're all people. We all make subjective yeah, choices. I know, but for, for all those we're not Theor- robots for, making decisions yeah. on pure numbers for all those theoretical situations that there's always the one where, you know, someone gets hired that because they're an, of the opposite sex and, and people think they're attractive. Right. Yeah. There's that, that too. I yeah. mean, so I don't know. Again, we're all humans. We're all interacting in this world. We're all colliding and making decisions on the fly. And, you know, sometimes we have to kind of, take a step to the side to avoid the guy that's coming head on. I mean, it just, we just have to make these types of decisions. Yeah. It's just, I, I think it's, oh, but it's just sad that nowadays we're, we're still so focused on skin color and we literally come out and say that we don't, we're not happy with our company's skin color. And if it only looked a little bit different or like this or that, um, it would be, it'd be more valuable. And I just, that just weirds me out. I just, it's sad that that's still where we are, but. Yeah. And I, I think I, I read something to that point. I mean, we, I, I always feel nervous talking about this kind of stuff because I do feel I've kind of been sheltered a bit in that every company I've worked for has been very inclusive. Every company I've worked for has, I've never seen any kind of discrimination along those lines. Yeah. There's been, you know, some people that made some bad decisions, but the company as a whole did not advocate it. It was just these people that made some bad decisions. So I've never really seen this type of large-scale discrimination that that seems that for some reason we're guarding against. And however, you know, I did read a re- recent article and I wish I had it linked and I wish I had remembered where it might have been a National Geographic thing, but it was talking about women scientists and, you know, the process of becoming a science scientist, the internship that, that occurs and all those kind of things and how the males in power who were over them, you know, would hit on them or would, you know, kind of make their lives difficult if they didn't, you know, go out with them or do things like that. And apparently it happened enough times that it was a pattern that could be seen in the data of all these, you know, established scientists who talked about what 
what it was like becoming a scientist. And they kind of had to kind of just push through it to get to where they were at, uh, which means they had to put up with a lot of harassment. And that's the kind of stuff that needs to be fixed, right? It, yeah. We and should, I wonder, we should I fix wonder, actual discrimination and harassment. I mean, but again, I think, I think that was, again, these were established female scientists talking about their experience as they went through the process of where they got to where they were at. And I, I'd like to think, and I'd like to hope that that was stuff that is in the past and is staying in the past. And as more people are being more of our generation and maybe, you know, our kids' generations where that type of discrimination is definitely discouraged and in your face as discouraged that that stuff shouldn't be happening on a large scale, I guess. There's always going to be that one person who's going to be a jerk about it, but I like to think we're making progress, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Okay. Well, before I get myself in any more trouble, let's change topics. Yeah, man. So do you have any opinions on this relate IQ acquisition other than just Salesforce spending another half a billion dollars they don't have? <laughs> I did see that it was, uh, uh, how much was it? It was like 300 million or something. Yeah, like I think that. 350, something like 350. Yeah. Which is interesting. Cause the guy we talked about a few times and the guy that founded it actually left Salesforce to start this whole big data thing. And of course, big data is big now and Salesforce needs big data and he solved it. So they're bringing him in. I don't, I don't see it as a bad thing because Salesforce definitely needs analytics. Um, it's, it's a big piece that's missing. Yeah. I, I and it's a hard problem to solve and, and hopefully bringing in relate IQ to do it um, and bring in that tool set will, will help because there really isn't any analytics. It's, it's a bunch of reports. It's a couple of dashboards, but there's nothing really, there's nothing that's mining the information or even any algorithms that are placed against the, the data to try and make some sense out of it or see some patterns or anything along those lines. Yeah. I mean, I, I still think that like crystal reports from 1997 was kind of better than most of Salesforce's reporting capabilities. Yeah. And what we're talking, when we're talking, you know, sales and opportunities and all things, all we have are some basic stages with some percentages that try to project some kind of outcome, which is, you know, fairly basic and almost non-helpful. Yeah. Um, and it, it actually contributes to a lot of the work we have to do because now we're, we get asked to write these triggers or, you know, add this additional data, data points or track some additional data points to try and help make some sense out of this data, or at least provide more data. I mean, Salesforce, you can't do like correlations and regressions and right. things. And yeah. So, so yeah, um, I don't know. I, it, I read that Salesforce isn't there, you know, there's no immediate plans to make it a part of the product offering or anything, which, which may make sense. I mean, let really IQ keep doing their thing. And if they do develop or when they develop, you know, the technology that, that makes sense for maybe Salesforce to incorporate some of it? Well, I think they do need a big data component in their, in their books and this is it. And I'd like to see them integrate it, but yeah, I, I agree. It's, there's not nothing to rush into at this point, but it's good to see that they are focused on analytics or at least putting some money towards it and, and identifying it as a gap and not something that's going to leave to the, to the market like they are with us developers, unless that changes soon. But right now they've kind of just left us out there. Um, I saw some numbers on, uh, I think these were IDC numbers on the size of like cloud providers. What was weird was Salesforce for software as a service was number one. Number two is ADP and then into it. But what's weird is, so they also broke it down into like IS and pass. Um, so IS Amazon has 40%. Um, then you have like Rackspace, Microsoft, IBM, some other ones. Um, but pass was in there. And so Amazon was number one in pass. 
So, I mean, I guess they have various platforms as a service offerings. Um, what are they like? Elastic Beanstalk, I guess that's the big one, maybe. And I'm sure there's others as well. Um, but Salesforce was, oh, Salesforce and Microsoft were tied for number two. And I'm thinking, I wonder if Salesforce is, because Salesforce doesn't really break out. If you look at the reports, they don't break out what numbers are from like pure, just like force.com, like licenses versus CRM. And CRM products, that's, totally, that's software as a service. So I think Salesforce's numbers count. I think they're double counted. I think they get full credit for software as a service for those and also full credit. Like I think all of Microsoft's revenue, sorry, I say Microsoft meant Salesforce. All of Salesforce's revenue also counts as platform as a service. That's the only way they could be up there with Amazon and Microsoft. I'm trying to think that through because I, I mean, how do you separate Salesforce's software as a service business from their platform as a service? But I think service? they do. I think they, they stick, well, I think, that depends on Salesforce and if they break out the numbers and provide that type of data. They, but I think, they, I I think they, everyone they out they there, they don't release that. Yeah. And th- it, that's probably what's added to the confusion then. Cause I think these analysts would love to say, Hey, this is Heroku business and this is CRM business. And here's where they all sit in, in the world of, of um, pass or whatever. And then I was thinking, okay, so maybe they're, maybe they're counting the Heroku. Cause I think Heroku does get split out. So maybe that's the pass number, but that, just, just as a, as a layer on top of Amazon. <laughs> so, so I guess you can still count their revenue though. It doesn't matter I mean, what the backend technology Salesforce is a layer on top of Oracle and a bunch of other stuff, including their own layers. So, well, I see it differently. I see, I mean, Oracle is a, is a component now, of now, Salesforce. Amazon's but, probably getting a boost because they're getting their numbers plus Heroku numbers, aren't they? Or wouldn't that, they? It, that's what I'm, I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying. That's why I don't understand these numbers. I don't see how, these make any sense? Well, I mean, they're numbers. They're they're analyst numbers, so they're all That's just true. kind of projections, and estimations, and <laughs> guesstimations. You're right. And, I forgot about the fact this is by analysts who literally get paid by every single one of these companies that they're reporting on. Yeah, and and, all, and we have analysts now that are just projecting insane numbers based on a technology that's never been released. And I'm talking about yeah. the Apple iWatch. They're all projecting stock prices and values and profits. They're even trying to go far as projecting profits on something that hasn't been released yet or even announced yet, or yeah. even well, it's that, just rumored. These, these analysts, they don't, they don't actually have to understand anything they're covering and they don't have to be right about anything. And rarely, because who's going to do it? Do people actually go back and look at these analyst track records and hold them accountable for the, the, the crap they spew. And half of them at least are essentially paid off by the companies that they're supposed to be covering. So, well, I mean, their reports drive the the price a bit. So, it it does create a I would say probably creates a lot of short term bubbles and then they they kind of even out as the year progresses. But I, yeah, I definitely think these analysts are all about the bubbles that they create because it creates that kind of quick win, short term cash for a lot of people that I want to say day trader type <laughs> trades. Um, but I don't know. It's not a world I live in. It's not a world I understand at no. all. But um, yeah, I, d- I definitely see them kind of trying to make these molehills into mountains and that affects, and unfortunately that affects the, the stock price. You have nothing to say. I'm done. Well, what'd you bring to drink then? Uh, I've been drinking ginger ale. Um, diet Hanson's ginger ale. Probably the best, like not probably the best. Well, it's not even artificial, but it's because I have all, if you look at the ingredients, it's, um, you know, ginger, limes, lemons, vanilla, but it's, it's not like Gosling's or some of these other like actual like ginger beers that are like brewed. 
yeah. ginger beers, but for like, I mean, it's so much better than like Canada dry or Schweppes or whatever. So, so what happened to making your own with your little exploding machine? I just <laughs> I haven't gotten around to it yet. <laughs> my, my house exploder. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't gotten around to it. You haven't I gotten have, around to it. Well, I have selected the recipe I'm going to try. Ah, I figured you'd have that all done and wrapped up and perfected by now. Yeah. I, didn't make, I made ginger ale. Um, I was probably maybe 21 years old. I made ginger ale. I have no idea why. I just, I barely remember doing it, but it was weird. <laughs> I, I don't understand that. At what point in life did you just kind of sit down and go, I'm going to make my own ginger ale? I don't know. I don't even remember why I did it. I just remember like it was shortly after I moved out from my parents' house because it was, I, it was, I did it in my first apartment. Did you just get some soda water and soda water and stick some ginger in it and stir it up? No. So I cooked down the ginger root with, I think with, um, sugar or some other stuff and made the, like a syrup. And then I mm-hmm. mixed it with carbonated water, like club soda or whatever. Is the word syrup or syrup? How do you say it? I say syrup and syrup. That sounds a little just, I say syrup syrup. I don't say syrup <laughs> syrup. <laughs> uh, that we're both from Texas, man. Yeah, we are syrup. It's no, that's like, that's more, syrup. Huh? That's not Texas. <laughs> it's not. Syrup. What is it? Syrup is syrup. not Texas. Oil. You need to put some oil in my car. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't say syrup. Pass the syrup, please. <laughs> Is that what you sound like? <laughs> no, it's not what I sound like. Uh, I'm so. What are you drinking? Did you have anything? I did. My uh, my live-in barista Craig made me an Italian roast coffee. Oh, your house boy. <laughs> my Keurig, I call it Craig. It's, oh, I get it. Okay. <laughs> uh, I just needed some coffee to get through the day. Mm, really yeah. tired, ready to pass out. I I literally went to put my shoes on at lunch to run an errand and sat down, finished putting my shoes on was kind of comfortable before I know it. I closed my eyes and passed out for 30 minutes or so. Oh, wow. That sounds like you need more sleep. It does. I've, uh, I've, uh, had to adjust my schedule and get up earlier these days. And so. Which means you have to go to bed earlier. That's the corollary. That's not happening. Too much to do. <laughs> <laughs> my body's just got to get used to like, Living on this. It won't, sleep. John. It won't. It it's, takes a toll to. and there's no making up for it either. No, that's not the way it works. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's not, it worked that way when I was younger. Now that I'm older, it's, it's having a hard time. All right. We done? We're done. Good day, Good day sir. Good sir. Da jinx. Do you know the website number? I, uh, you know, I should have it in front of me and I don't. 